Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome once again to Madam Perry Salon, the podcast that loves you, the podcast that, um, well, has more celebrities than the inauguration. How about that? But I am your hostess, your groove mistress, your spiritual advisor, Madam Perry, but you can call me Jen, Jennifer. Um, I just want to say thank you to everybody that's been listening, and especially if you've been subscribing or if you've left a uh, a review on Stitcher or iTunes or anywhere, or click follow on any platform to follow the podcast. That really helps me to continue to keep bringing so many great guests to you. Now, tonight's show is a little different. So many people I know write, and, you know, I play music sometimes by guests, but sometimes, you know, I want to hear somebody read. And I don't know about you, but... Sometimes I'm on the road a lot, and when I am, I like to listen to audiobooks because even if you've got Sirius XM radio, still, sometimes those channels repeat the same songs over and over and over. So I like to have a good audiobook to read, or rather to listen to and not read. Or sometimes when I'm traveling, like I used to in Atlanta, take um, uh, take an express bus. It's, um which is very, very nice. They're very comfy, like coach buses with the big cushy seats and stuff, and listen to um, uh, books and things being read to me by someone else, maybe sometimes the author themselves. So that's what I wanted to give to you tonight is several short stories. So if you're listening tonight live, it is December 16th, 2019, and it's about 8 o'clock Eastern time. If you're listening live tonight, I want you to know I've got several people. I'm going to be reading a story by Becky Kyle or Rebecca McFarlane Kyle. Some of you know her because she was uh, um, she was one of the judges on the Amazon Breakout Novel Award for years. That's when they still had that. And uh, she's quite a well-known, well-loved writer. Also, something from uh, my friend Marilyn Opitz in uh, Maryland. She's a, a makeup artist and also uh, a performer and writer. And so it's going to be a short story from a selection of uh, short stories that kind of interweave that she's working on. Uh, something from Andrea Walker, A.L. Walker. A bit of a fantasy, kind of YA, but kind of exotic. Uh, it's her book, uh, It Happened in the Cove. And I'm going to read something funny from my blog. And I might read something, if I have time, from my client, Rachel Ann Cox, from her book, uh, A Light from the Ashes. I hope I can get it all in there. But um, first of all, though, I'm going to play a song by a former guest. It's uh, just a couple of minutes. It's a song is called Clocks All Stopped. It's by Chasm Sultan. Nothing is certain one day, who knows? Maybe. 
All right, the beautiful voice of Kazim Sultan, um, who's going to be doing some solo touring very soon. So you'll be watching out, and hopefully he'll come back here before then and talk to us. Now, the uh, first story I'm going to I'm going to read is a story by Becky Kyle, and it's called "The Naming of Cats." The Naming of Cats by Becky Kyle, by Rebecca McFarland Kyle. 104 years ago, four years was long for humans. In the final flickers of her luminous life, Vivian lay in her mahogany canopy bed, covered in sumptuous velvet and cushiony silk pillows perfumed with cinnamon and blood orange. Breaths burbled out of full lips which once brought forth notes that left audiences spellbound. Vivian was still beautiful. Her ebon skin was smooth and flawless. Her hair, whiter than her bed linens, wreathed her face in a full silken mass. Amber eyes, which alternated between doe softness and a tiger's ferocity, gleamed with intellect. Scuttlebutt, her 13th black cat in 80 years, was her sole companion. He lay curled beneath her long, slender fingers, purring steadily. Only the two of them knew he had been the same animal she had found backstage at the Cotton when she was just starting out. He had been ebony, inky, velvet, onyx, jet. His final name mocked the gossip columnist who still posted rumors about her occasionally. Guess you'll be moving on. Vivian's voice was barely audible over the whisper of the heating system. The jewels she wore around her throat reflected in his eyes as she stroked his silken black fur. Your grandson is not as tolerant, Scuttlebutt said. Philip will find his way, Vivian said. Philip's occasional presence wrecked their domestic harmony. While she had been a jazz singer, her grandson rapped. She was a viper back in the day. The cocaine he snorted made him dependent and vicious. Vivian never approved of his music either. She hated the waste of a beautiful baritone on music lacking all romance and disrespectful to women. But most of all, she hated the way he dressed in more jewelry than a gold digger and pants so loose they fell down and showed his bare butt. Occasionally, when Scuttlebutt wanted to catch her ire, he'd remind Vivian that her mother said similar things to her back in the day. Scuttlebutt waited as Vivian drew her final breath. What humans called soul departed her body in a mist. He gently closed her eyes with the most delicate of paws, knocked the phone beside her bed off the hook to dial 911 so her body would not have to wait for her maid to find, and then slid the gleaming ruby from her unresisting finger. He dropped the ring in a heavy gold mesh purse Vivian had discarded that he had hidden behind her headboard. Within it were treasures commemorating their time together. Her long-forgotten wedding rings, heavy with golden diamonds, an emerald earring stolen from a backup singer who had attempted to usurp Vivian's career, a diamond-encrusted cufflink from a mob boss who had enjoyed Vivian's bed. While most would see items for their gold and precious stones, each evoked memories, one of the most potent forms of magic. Scuttlebutt heard a human woman's voice from the phone. This is 911. State your emergency. 
He pawed through the jewelry on Vivian's dresser to see if there was any other trinket worthy when the scape of, scrape of keys in the penthouse doors startled him. Stealthy footsteps followed. Philip. Scuttlebutt hastened toward the terrace doors with a chain purse strap caught between his teeth. Vivian always left them ajar so she could hear the sounds of the city below and smell the perfume of the small flower garden planted there. He was almost out when Philip entered his grandmother's bedroom. Thieving cat, Philip bellowed, enraged, kicking out with his booted foot. Of course, he had accused him of doing precisely what he had come to do. Scuttlebutt dropped the purse, transformed to his true shape, gaining scales, talons, and wings, and flew in the man's face. It was an awkward, unbalanced fight. A large breed dog had broken his wing years before, and the delicate bone never healed correctly. Dragons did not feel pain in the fey realm, but his right wing ached terribly with winter's damp in the human one. You dare call me a thief, Scuttlebutt hissed. You were sneaking in to steal from a kinswoman who'd give you anything she had. Philip's dark eyes widened as he backed up, swearing. He grabbed Vivian's cane, which she kept by her bed, an elegant piece of ebony with a white, gold, and lapis handle, and batted at Scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt spat flame, setting the cane ablaze. Philip dropped it and rushed out slamming the heavy penthouse door. Scuttlebutt sucked back his flame. Unfortunately, he couldn't stop the smoke alarm from ringing. Sirens were coming closer. The alarm company would have a fire engine dispatched, too. Damned humans and their alarms. Vivian would be amused to go out with such a bang. Scuttlebutt swooped down and grabbed his prize, as well as a strand of black pearls, and flew out the terrace door. Twenty stores down, he dared not look or he would abandon the flight. He dove down to the park and raced on four trembling legs through the darkness toward the glade to the gate to Fairy Lay. What the? A late-night jogger shrieked, seeing a winged creature carrying a gleaming handbag. Scuttlebutt took cover in the bushes, cursing the timing. It wasn't a solstice or all hallows. The veil to the fairy was near impenetrable. It required every ounce of magic he could summon to pass and find his tiny cave before Titania, or worse, his larger draconian kin, were alerted to his presence. He arrived limp with exhaustion, barely strong enough to fly the short distance to his home and work the magic to penetrate the wall of solid rock. His home in fairy was a geode cathedral, half amethyst and half citrine. Like darkness come to day, it was tucked away in a tight enough cranny only a dragonette could reach. Fortunately, hatchlings had to attain age and size before their magic manifested. He dumped the treasure upon the small gleaming mountain of riches he had already accumulated, then fussed when it covered up a mask of gold which he had stolen from the tomb of a favored pharaoh who treated him like the god he was. He'd have to find another human soon. Too many enemies resided in fairy. For now, he needed to rest and replenish his magic. Once satisfied with the arrangement of his treasures, Scuttlebutt turned around three times, curled up, and slept. Cheek 
pillowed on his tail. Cracking sounds belatedly alerted him to trouble. His home shattered like a wine glass thrown against a stone hearth. He tumbled forth, struggling to shake the veil of magic-deprived slumber to see if sweet Kotal, in all his fiery glory, smirking down at him. He was the largest of their kind, a massive drake resplendent in his glory. What's this? Sweet Kotal's roar shook the ground beneath him. A hatchling with a treasure already? No. I remember the freak. Scuttlebutt didn't wait around to find out what Sweet Kotal would do. He snatched the handbag and raced for the veil, feeling the heat of a gout of flames chasing him. He tore through to an unknown portion of the human world, fetching up hard against a massive oak trunk. Reform, reform, a frightened voice screamed in his aching head. Instead, he dragged his handbag into the bushes and dug a hole deep enough for both of them. He used his wing to scrape leaves over his body and slept. When he awoke, his magic was revived. It was time to change and venture forth into the human world. Scuttlebutt considered his options. He had favored the cat shape since his encounters with the Egyptians, but he always chose a different manifestation until Vivian. Definitely not a black cat. Humans were a suspicious lot. Many of Vivian's friends commented through the years that black cats were unlucky. Vivian had always believed just the opposite. On several occasions, he utilized his gifts to encourage those beliefs. Knowing Vivian's life was ending, he'd watched enough television to make more informed decisions about cats. He stroked the ruby ring and slowly took on a kitten shape. This time, he'd become a fuzzy-haired, reddish-brown tabby kitten with white paws with two extra toes on his front feet. He'd often lamented the lack of thumbs. Now he possessed as close as a feline could get to the extra digits. He reburied the purse and urinated on the spot, which was enough to keep even a skunk away. Now, Scuttlebutt set out to explore his territory and seek a human companion. From the position of the stars and the heat, he surmised he emerged far southwest of New York City. The Vale was again in a park-like area, which was central to low-slung housing, less densely constructed than the tall structures he'd grown accustomed to. Sounds and scents of home came to him in a rush. Nearby, someone cooked fresh meat on a fire pit. A woman sang quietly to a child. Televisions and radios broadcast a melange of words and music. Scuttlebutt's nose twitched at the scent of strong magic. He considered stepping back across the veil and finding another spot, but that would use much of his power. What was it? Something shadowy, cold, which fed on humans. The trail led to the gate of a home conveniently close to the veil. This would normally be an ideal place. He could see the fading tracks of a feline leading in and out of the gate. Catnip, garlic, and other tantalizing fragrances drifted from inside a cedar fence. Sharp, pained cries indicated the dark fay neared the end of his work. Scuttlebutt crept within cedar bushes to let the predator pass. While the creatures were truly never sated, 
They tended to pass lesser prey if they were fed. The dark fay passed a fetid wind on a cool, still night, and having drunk his fill of the woman's pain, he moved with a light step, humming a popular high court tune. He was not one to partake of the bodies of humans. Their touch was offensive to him. This one stole their souls and left a hole within them. Few but the most skilled healers could mend. Sounds of weeping from the house stopped Scuttlebutt from continuing. Knowing it was safe, he hopped to the top of the fence and peered in as the inhabitant opened the patio door and wandered out clad in a full-length ivory chemise, very reminiscent of olden times. Her feet were bare and no doubt cold on the flagstone patio, but she paid that no heed. Light from the interior showed her curly hair a deep titian. Unlike modern women, she had a figure Reuben would have immortalized. He couldn't see the lines of exhaustion on her face, but he knew they were there, and he sensed them from the way she carried herself. Oh, yes, she'd get to sleep quickly every night. Then the dark fay would find her, drink his fill of the everyday annoyances, and dig deeper within her psyche for more. Then he would leave her exhausted, wondering what happened. And the fae would return over and over again until he drained her. Scuttlebutt thought the power he sensed was the fae, but realized the woman possessed strong but untrained magic. This was why she managed to survive the thing harming her for as long as she had. She turned her face up to the stars and wept softly, wrapping her arms about her chilled body. So the fay was draining and using an untrained mash to power his own forays into the human realm. Gradually, she would be of no use in the daytime. If she was lucky, the fay would abandon her after he drained her of her magic and memories, or she'd end up the victim of an accident. It was much easier to survive in the horse and carriage for one plagued with night visitors. In the modern, fast-paced world, they had to drive cars and operate machinery, so like the Fae, to take and take without returning any kind of blessing. It's no wonder they needed a human-based public relations campaign. If the humans ever comprehended the truth, they would burn every cute ornament which sustained their belief in fairy close the veil with cold iron, and abandon any celebrations of the holy days which gave the fae ingress to their realm. And they'd take their own kind, made rich from fairy gold, and hang them for leading so many astray. Every instinct told Scuttlebutt to leave the tainted place. Indeed, the woman was a victim, but some part of her nature granted the dream creature access to her sleep. It was folly to consider helping her. Dark Fay were formidable enemies. He didn't need more than he already had. And yet, her tears stayed him. Kitty? Her call nearly knocked him off the fence. Of course, he chided himself angrily. If you look at someone too long, they will look back. His eyes glowed in darkness like an ordinary cat's. Kitty? She called again, her voice sounding stuffy from weeping. Before Scuttlebutt could move, she turned back to the house, leaving the patio door open. 
She returned just a few moments later with a delicious smelling saucer full of tuna and a bowl of fresh water with ice. I'll just leave this here, she said. Come and get it. She stepped back into her home, leaving the patio door open. Scuttled by stomach ground. He had no idea how long he slept, but it had been a while since he had eaten. His nose advised him the food was good and safe, and he should partake. One never knew when the next meal would come, or whether it would be mere as savory. Perhaps the fay wouldn't notice the telltale signs of his own magic, particularly if he hurried. Of course, he was face was buried in tuna by the time he arrived at that conclusion. Whenever there was a battle between sense and stomach, the belly won. He'd think his way out of the problem after he was fed. It worked for thousands of years, after all. And that's where I'm going to stop right now. There's a lot more to the story, but you need to go check out Becky Kyle, Rebecca McFarlane Kyle's work, her books. She is an excellent, excellent writer, um, writes in several genres. So I'm going to have you just go check it out. Now, the next thing I'm going to have read to you is this is by Marilyn Opitz. Uh, she and her husband, Patrick, they're actors. They in Maryland, uh, near the D.C. area. And she's got a book of short stories or essays that tend to, it's about couples um, and domestic situations. And in it, they all sort of, um, the stories are separate, but they tend to intertwine. And I'm going to pull up her story here. Let me get it. Marilyn couldn't be here to read. Um, she's working on the project. As I said, she's a makeup artist and a writer and performer. So this is, uh, Marilyn recorded this just for us here on Madame Perry's Salon. The story is called The Pickup by Marilyn Opitz. This is one of the many short stories from the book I'm working on called Dark Suburbs. The Pickup by Marilyn Opitz. It was a sunny, Sunday afternoon in the suburbs. It should have been a better day, but it wasn't. Joe sat in his car with his two kids, waiting for what seemed like an hour, but it really was only 10 minutes. Joe was waiting for his soon-to-be ex-wife, Mary, to meet him and take the kids back to the house, his old house, that used to be their home together. Now he didn't live there anymore. She was late again as usual. McDonald's parking lot was quite full that afternoon. A lacrosse game at a nearby high school had just ended. The local high school's team had won, and tons of cars of smiling, happy girls with sweaty ponytails wearing expensive athletic gear were piling into the restaurant in droves with their tired yet proud parents following along behind them into the restaurants. Joe's kids had already eaten lunch. He'd taken them out for pizza to their favorite place. Amy, who was 12, was sitting with her iPod earbuds in her ears as usual. Tuned out to Joe, her brother Tommy, the situation, and the rest of the world. Tommy, who was 10, sat with his portable DVD player in his lap, 
watching the latest Spider-Man movie and not looking up once in any direction. Jode sighed. Must have been a tough home buyer that took longer than expected. His ex-wife was a real estate agent, and Sundays were usually a work day for her. It had been tough on their marriage not to be able to enjoy a normal weekend together as a family after she started selling. He looked over at his kids and thought about when they were born. He thought he'd done his best, but it just wasn't good enough for Mary. Then he caught a glimpse of her walking towards the car in his rearview mirror. The click-clack sound of her high heels got louder as she approached the car. He could see her tight, fitting designer suit with its brass buttons on the jacket. Joe remembered when she bought it the last time they were at the outlets together a couple of years ago. But before he could get the words, you look nice today, out, Joe was attacked with the usual insults. Couldn't you at least have combed their hair, Mary said way too loudly, especially apparent to the other customers coming going out of the McDonald's who glanced annoyingly in her direction. Nag, 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 Joe thought to himself, ignoring Mary's outburst. Not a hello or a how are you all today. Boy, she can be such a shrew sometimes. He wanted to yell and be mean back to her. But he knew not to go there. The worst of the fighting had been months before when they finally decided to split up for good. It had been a long time coming. The kids were used to the routine by now. Live with Mary during the week, spending the weekends with Joe. They also knew the routine of the arguments and the fighting. They learned to just do their own thing and stay out of it. They barely glanced up as Joe got out of the car to get their sleeping bags out of the trunk. Come on, I don't have all day, Mary yelled into the car at her two kids. It was almost in slow motion as they put their prospective gadgets into their backpacks and got out of the car. There was no hello hug or hey mom, guess what we did this weekend. Not here, not with this family. They've already eaten. I took them out for pizza, Joe said to his wife, knowing that his words would sit into the thin air of disgust that was surrounding her towards him. We went to the zoo yesterday since it was nice out and worked on homework last night. Still no reply. Mary was watching the kids get into the car as they shut the car doors and were tuned out to the rest of the world again, back into their gadgets. Then Mary turned to Joe. Even though her makeup was flawless, she was starting to sweat, a vein raising, in, raising up onto her forehead. You think you can be Disneyland Dad and play the good guy now after all that you have done? Mary could barely look at him. The feelings of disgust were too much. When she looked at him, it all came back as a sick rush of sadness and anger. The memories of the beautiful wedding they'd had the promise of a great, successful, happy life. Their careers had worked out. The kids had come and buying their house, filling it up with things that they loved and enjoyed together. A house that was a home, filled then with so much joy. But then Joe's dad died suddenly, and Joe seemed to change. As the months and years went by, since they'd had to travel across the country for Joe's dad's funeral, Things had started to unravel in Joe and Mary's marriage. First, there was Joe's quiet indifference to what seemed like everything. Then there were a few small little things that she'd let slide. Staying out late after a game he'd supposedly gone to with his buddies, 
or those nights that he told her he had to entertain clients from out of town and forgot to call. They tried counseling. Joe claimed that Mary wasn't sympathetic enough to him. Mary claimed that he was going off to do whatever he wanted, staying out late, going on camping and fishing trips with his buddies. Photography had been a hobby that she had encouraged him to try as a creative outlet. She thought it would get him out of his depression after his dad had died. As it turned out, he had a natural talent as a photographer. His photos were amazing, and Mary had surprised him with gifts of getting several hardbound books of Joe's photos to display to friends as tabletop books when they came over. But still, even though there'd been months of counseling, they were at an impasse in their marriage, and nothing was getting solved. He blamed her work schedule as a real estate agent. She blamed his consulting job, which made him travel out of town quite a bit. They decided to try some special date nights together, which worked for a while. Mary had thought things had been getting better until she noticed that he started to get strangely quiet again. There were only be so many times when she could ask Joe, what are you thinking? Or is everything okay? Just like the kids, the flat reply of everything is fine or nothing when she asked what's wrong. Meanwhile, things still had to happen around the house. Bills still need to be paid. The kids still needed to be dropped off at various places. Mary remembered telling the counselor about years before when she was single and she had had relationship deal breakers, things that she no way not ever was going to put up with from a boyfriend. But black and white situations become gray for her as a married mom with two kids, trying to keep a marriage together with Joe, the man she was supposed to have a precious commitment with. Trying to hang in there, to do the right thing, took time and energy, and Mary pushed down so many frustrations. Meanwhile, her dreams of for their life together were squashed while the trash was being taken out. There were her company gatherings and all the neighborhood parties, summer barbecues that they would attend together, always smiling and acting happy so that their co-workers and friends wouldn't suspect that their lives were less than perfect. Mary always smiled, listened to her friends' problems with their husbands, never wanting to let on that she too was unhappy with Joe. It was easier to not go there for fear of completely falling apart and creating an awkward situation. Then finally a thread appeared, the thread that was that when pulled seemed to unravel their marriage to the point of unrepair. With the schedule of working on weekends, it sometimes meant that Mary had rotating days during the week when she was home alone. Amy and Tommy would be at school, and sometimes Joe would be out of town on business. One day when Mary was in the laundry room and had just put a load of the kids' clothes in, in the washing machine. She heard a cell phone ring from one of the laundry baskets. She knew it wasn't hers. She thought Joe had his phone and the kids had their phones with them. So whose phone is that? Whose laundry pile is that ring coming from, she thought, as she frantically read through the laundry basket and the other piles to find the phone. Was able to answer it in the nick of time. It had been in the front pocket of one of Joe's pairs of jeans. Hello, Mary asked into the unknown cell phone while looking down at it to see if the number was one she knew. The woman's 
voice on the other end of the phone said, Oh my God! and hung up. It was like the darkest of clouds had come over the room. Mary's stomach had done a flip-flop just as the sound of the washing machine whirred away. She knew what that hang-up meant. She studied the phone. It was a prepaid one. Mary's mind went to detective mode, the only direction a woman's mind can go when in that situation. Joe had been in such a rush to leave for his business trip, he'd thrown the jeans he'd been wearing into that basket with his gym clothes last night. That woman was calling because it was during the day, a time when she knew Joe usually would be home and Mary wouldn't be there. Slowly, Mary started piecing things together in her mind before getting the courage to decide to hit redial on the prepaid phone and speak to that woman who had just called. Ring, ring, then a pickup. The anger she was feeling gave Mary the courage to speak. This is Mary, Joe's wife. Why are you calling my husband? The woman on the other end of the line had no hesitation to tell her what kind of relationship she had had with Joe. It was no ordinary affair, the woman had said. Far from it. They'd met online through a chat group of a favorite band, and it turned out that she didn't live too far from Mary and Joe's neighborhood that they realized that they also had a mutual friend, Glenn, from when they'd been teenagers. Mary knew Glenn as well from back then. Glenn had always been a great friend to Mary and to Joe over the years, and they now worked for the same real estate company. Before Mary's mind could go to, does our friend Glenn know about this woman? Or before it could go to, how could Glenn keep this from me if he does know? She wanted to keep listening to what the woman who said her name was Debbie, was saying. Debbie said that she and Joe, had, having the mutual friend in Glenn, had lowered the creepiness factor of meeting a stranger online. One thing had led to another, and they'd been seeing each other for a few weeks, describing all kinds of weird scenarios they'd got into, with him taking artsy photos of it, how it all had started from Joe telling how her, telling her how photogenic she was, how he'd want her to capture her beauty on film. Debbie told Mary that she wasn't in love with Joe. She knew she was in over her head with seeing him and that she herself was unhappily married, going through a separation and couldn't take any more complications. She told Mary that Joe had bragged to her that there were other women he'd met this way online. And, and had these similar kinds of relationships with. Debbie kept apologizing to Mary. She kept saying, I wish I'd never met Joe. I was feeling so low, so bad at myself because my husband had cheated on me. I know what it's like to be the wife and to be lied to, but Joe made me feel pretty, told me things I needed to hear, and then it spun out of control. I was calling Joe today to break it off, I swear. Mary heard the woman crying, apologizing to her over and over. Mary slammed the phone down and ran to the bathroom to throw up. After learning this news, Mary had made a plan to act like everything was okay with Joe until he got back from his trip. When he called to ask how things were, she acted like everything was okay, faking as well as she could. Then when he did return a week later, she made sure the kids would be at their friends' houses for sleepovers so that her confrontation with Joe would not be heard by them. The afternoon after Joe got back from his trip, he was sitting at his desk, getting caught up on, on updating his work files on his computer. Mary sat the prepaid, 
Craig phoned down to his computer mouse. Joe glanced at it and then glanced back to his computer screen. What's this? Mary exclaimed. Nothing, Joe replied simply. Nothing? Is this is that all you have to say about this phone is that it's nothing? Mary yelled while sitting next to him on the floor by his computer. She just didn't have the strength to stand to look at him. For some reason, the feel of the rich carpet seemed to comfort her in that moment. Joe shrugged his shoulders and kept on typing. Well, that nothing rang the other day while I was doing laundry, and that nobody on the other end of the phone told me some things about you. Just tell me the truth. Is that so hard? Who the hell are you? Who the hell have I been married to all these years? Mary yelled as Joe kept sitting there typing away, like nothing was happening. Then she sprawled out on the carpet, banging on the floor with her hands. Just tell me the truth. Just tell me the fucking truth. I deserve to know the truth. Mary felt like she was going insane and that Joe was driving her there in the fastest car in modern history. The events that happened after that were a blur. Joe finally did confess that he'd been having multiple meetings with all kinds of different women. They found a way to make himself happy, to make himself feel in control again. Mary kicked him out of the house that night. It didn't matter that Christmas was going to be in two days. Joe moved into the spare bedroom of, of a condo that belonged to one of his buddies who had gotten a, divorced a few years prior. All of these things going through Mary's mind every time she looked at Joe. Life had resumed, even though it wasn't Mary or Joe's idea of normal. Those bad moments were over, but new ones were going on all the time. Six months later, it was a very hot summer, and the black pavement of the McDonald's parking lot with the heated emotions of both of them, were making both of them sweat even more. Mary was getting stronger, but she still was so hurt and angry at Joe. It made Mary even angrier that Joe acted like he was a victim to their friends, like he was the one whose heart was broken, looking oh so sad every time he had to drop off the kids on Sundays and give them back to Mary. Her attorney had told her to have the pickups and drop-offs be at a neutral place, not the home of either party, not where the old baggage of the surroundings of their old home, nor would she have to see his new bachelor pad and get even angry at the way he's living now. Joe's hair was growing in a little longer. He was starting to dress on the weekend like a teenage skater boy. More things that made Mary angry when she saw him since he looked like he didn't have a care in the world. Who knows how messy his kitchen is these days. I can't imagine what that must look like, Mary thought. But for a moment, with the smell of McDonald's fries in the air, the sun shining bright, the blue, breeze blew his hair a little bit, reminding her of how it looked when they were dating. The sun shining making it appear to have highlights that Mary had once fallen in love with. His eyes looked sad, and the stressed expression on his face made her feel a weird dual emotion. I guess this is why divorce is so hard, Mary realized. One moment I hate myself for being so mean to the person I fell in love with, but at the same time I know he created this situation in the first place. How could he have betrayed me in all those ways? Then the thought came into her head as she grabbed the kid's sleeping bags out of his hand, out of the car. He's really just in love with himself. 
The angry feelings toward him made Mary throw the sleeping bags into the trunk of her car with two big thumps and slammed down the hood of the car so hard that the whole car shook. The kids hardly noticed. They didn't even look back to, as if to say, what was that? Not even to share a glance between the two of them to say, here we go again, after the hood slammed down. Not this time, since the situation of the pickup was all too familiar. Bye, kids. See you next week, Joe said as he waved towards the car. He knew they weren't going to look up, but he said it anyway. Mary got into her car and drove off. Joe put his hands into his pockets and thought to himself, Gee, Mary's turned into such a yuppie bitch. <laughs> then started to whistle the ending from the Billy Joel song, The Stranger, as he walked past the McDonald's play place and went inside. During the fit that Mary had thrown with the sleeping bags, Joan had seen that one of the lacrosse moms going inside was pretty cute, and he was going to go in to talk to her. He felt confident as he walked towards her table, introduced himself to her, and said his daughter played lacrosse in middle school and would probably be on the same team as her daughter in the next few years. He told a joke about his full-time job, saying he wished he could get paid to do what he really loved, which was his photography. And then he told her how photogenic she was, and of course used his best pickup line, how would you like to have me take some photos of you sometime? So, Chuck... Talk to us about Fisdale being the Knicks' new coach. What's your uh, thoughts on that? Well, well, I'll I tell you right now, Ernie, it don't matter who going to coach this team. They don't got no talent on they it. And I don't, I don't really feel I talk That's the truth. Hard. I don't feel I talk about the Knicks right Do now. Do you want to talk about lunch? No. <laughs> what would you like to talk about, Chuck? See, Ernie, I've been listening to a podcast called Madam Perry Salon. And I think Jennifer Perry... She's a great host. I mean, she got all these bestseller authors, roster, all the dip comedians. What about people we that could, don't have rings? Here we go. We I got real fun. Ah, 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 ah. But I think she's great, and I think people would love her show. She got a great laugh. She make The laugh come out of nowhere, like an eagle come in there and just steal the whole show. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's not terrible. Well, before we heard uh, the guys talking about, I guess, basketball and and podcast, we heard Marilyn Opitz read from the pickup from uh, from her book of stories, which hopefully we'll have the whole book soon, um, as soon as it's published, as soon as um, she gets a publisher. And I think that there are a couple she's talking to right now, so that's a good thing. But anyway, thank you so much, Marilyn. And let's see, I know, you know what, thinking of um, this song, Bad Girls, really applies. Bruce Sedano was on the show about a year or so ago, and uh, this is a song he wrote that his um, his late wife, Donna Summer, had a huge hit with. So listen to Bruce Sedano, and then I'll be back, because you know what, my friend Mike Gall called me. If you know Mike Gall, especially people up in the New England area, he's a stand-up comic in uh, Pennsylvania. I think it's called Pennsburg, Pennsylvania. I don't know if that's a real town or if he just made that up, because um, 
Who knows? Who knows why? Maybe he had some people he owed money to or something, which I think they're catching up with him because the latest I've heard is that um, he blames, I think, on the mail person or, the, or, or FedEx delivery, but he said the mail person throws a mail and knocks the door off the hinges of the uh, the mailbox, and so now he's going to get a cast iron one, or I think he's, um, I don't know, I think he also... Uh, considered asking his cousin to help him build one of those rock kind, but make it look like it's just uh, plywood on the outside so the next time somebody drives through, they'll uh, wreck, I don't know, Mike Gall. You know, comedians, that's how they are. So anyway, but Mike called, uh, I mean, he texted up here and asked me, you know, why don't you read some of your own work? Why don't you read one of your stories? Uh, He thinks I'm funny. So I'll tell you what, I will read one of my stories, and then... um, I will play right after I play Bad Girls by Bruce Sedano. You say I'm out on the street at night Picking up all kinds of strangers Prices right You can't score if your pocket's tight You want a good time You ask yourself From near and far Bad girls Talking about the sad girls Sad, 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 sad girls Talking about the bad girls Now it's Friday night And the strip is hot Sun gone down And they're out to try Legs look hot Do you want to get down? You ask yourself Who they are Like everybody else They want to be a star Bad girl Talking about the sad girl Sad, sad girls Talking about the bad girls Bad girls, talking about the bad girls. Your mama won't 
like it. No, no, no. Your mama won't like it. No, no. Bad girl, bad girl. Talking about the bad girl. Association Time at the Blue Ridge Women's Correctional Facility from Bone Song by Bunny Goodjohn. Deaf Brenda's telling us about the time her husband smacked her with a cockatiel's cage stand, how sound closed down that night, and yet her memory holds the parrot's scream. She recalls slow feathers, tiny gray curls landing on her yellow fun fur slippers. We lean in. She's telling our story, and we love how they all start happy with sass and drinks. She threw his sorry ass outside, piled furniture against the door, and then took her whiskey and the kids to bed, slept sound despite the ricochet of words against the trailer siding. There is no recollection of clubbing him with the iron. But there it was, bloody, and shining on the deck. What can I say, she said, her yard full of police and plastic toys. Her hands already clasped behind her back. Drink brings a crazy bitch to fuck up my life. My turn for tales, but I'm just here for plain old DUI. So I tell the girls of Rita, patron saint of suffering, whose mouth was home to bees that buzzed behind her teeth that left her tongue unstung, a saint I'd forgotten until Death Brenda described her tinnitus as a bee song. The rec room hums and we're all lost to joining drunken dots of our own blackout lives. We're haunted by mouths that have always swarmed with bees, homesick for a time when we were too blessed, too young, to know the treachery of swallowing. All right, that was uh, actor Shane Stedham, and he's reading a poem called Association Time at the Blue Ridge Women's Correctional Facility it was written by Bunny Goodjohn, brilliant poet and author. Uh, it's from her book of poetry, Bone Song. I highly recommend Bone Song by Bunny Goodjohn. Also, uh, her books, uh, Snow Globes and Sticklebacks, and its sequel, The Beginning Things. Um, I urge anyone, if you have a chance to hear Bunny Goodjohn read or pick up her books or read anything, do get it. Okay, now, so to make Mike Gall happy, I'm going to read a little bit of one of my things. Now, you can find this on blogger.com, and it's uh, my blog, Memoirs of a Misanthrope, uh, True Stories About My Life. So I'm not going to read a whole blog, but you can find these and continue to read them. And I will, uh, well, I just look forward to hearing what you think about it. So, this one is called Job Hunting in America. And, okay, Job Hunting in America, part one. Okay, part one. All right, here we go. 
oh, the hell, the aggravation, the damnation, and yea, verily, the humiliation of the dreaded job search. For so many years, I was denied positions and promotions I wanted in favor of those who had what I did not. A personal relationship with upper management, dirt on management, or a college degree. So finally, at an age when most people are sending their children to the halls of higher learning, I went and I worked and studied and went off the social radar entirely until I proudly walked that walk in my robe and mortarboard. Walked prouder, I am sure, than anyone else who walked on that lovely May afternoon. And the search began. Yes, I learned that they want young, not necessarily intelligent, creative, or dependable, but young. I also learned that an entry-level position in any aspect of journalism is nearly impossible because they are filled with interns. Interns work for free, class credit, or stipend, you know, slave labor. Once they've proven some member measure of skill, like dressing with a minimum of material and saying awesome several times a minute without missing a gum-smacking beat, they are often hired. Feeling confident in my PR skills, I began offering to do pro bono work for folks to develop my portfolio and be able to offer a curriculum vitae to prospective employers rather than a resume with my shining degree as the header trailed by jobs I hated that had nothing whatsoever to do with journalism. I have already established the high annoyance factor of the temp agencies in a previous chapter. Those nasally airbrained twits, difficult to understand on a phone message, deceitful about pay, deceitful about the job with their weasel wording. And I spent hours a day scouring the newspapers, job search websites every day, and suddenly then applying for all manner of jobs, first and foremost. I look for jobs in any area of public relations, editing, etc. Can't get in without interning, working for free, or having about five years of experience in a massive portfolio. Then I go for, well, everything else. From administrative assistant to kennel attendant. Looks like I'm finally overeducated for something I can't even get a job-scooping dog do. And when I finally get an interview, they ask me stupid questions like, how do we know you'll stay here? With a degree, you might leave for a PR job. Now think about it. If I could do that, do you honestly think I would be here abasing myself now? Or the ridiculous, yet still popular with small-brained interviewers, where do you see yourself five years from now? about as far from your sour mug as I can get. Or, better yet, honey, I see myself in my lovely villa in Andalusia getting my daily massage while Armand Asante walks my dogs, Juan Soler makes cocktails for me and Daniel Craig. Okay, the weight loss clinic. As I went off went into the post office to mail a fresh stack of resumes. I noticed the now hiring sign in the window of the weight loss place next door. I paused but then figured they wouldn't hire me. The sign was still there a week later, so I went in, offered my resume to the receptionist. She took it with a near-polite thanks and went back. I left. 
three weeks later, I have a voicemail from Sammy, an area manager, asking me to call about my resume. I do, and we set an interview for Thursday. It's raining, so I leave early to get there on time. Sammy's not there, but another area honcho, Lucille, will interview me. The very neat, very skinny, and very white Lucille is clad in a beige polyester pantsuit and short blonde polyester wig. The wig and makeup alone must constitute of her total weight. Speaking in a syrupy southern drawl, she speaks about the rain with terms like puddle ducking and others I've never heard. As we walk toward the office where she will interview me, we pass a few desks on the left where three women, about 35 years old, are seated. I'm introduced to these women and told they are weight loss counselors. They give the distinct vibe of being abused prisoners. Indeed, with no makeup and unkempt, nappy hair that had long ago lost its ambition, they look more like homeless people who were yanked off the street and put behind desks to make it appear to a passerby or job applicant that this was a thriving and culturally diverse business. The place has been here for a few years, but as I'm walking to finished basement or junk closet, Lucille motions for me to take a seat in the closet-sized office with one desk, three chairs, bare walls, a flip chart on the desk, and a cluster of half a dozen weight loss vitamins and bars. Lucille tells me about the company and her personal struggle with weight loss. Weight loss my foot. Skeletor Lucille is a rag, a bone, and a hank of wig. I sit quietly and posed in my pantsuit and crisp white blouse. I want to seem well-mannered and easy to work with for their clientele. I need money. I smile and politely agree with everything she says, and then she hits me with a big one. Now, I'm a native Southerner, and one thing that shoots up a warning flare for me is to hear an old Southern woman drawling slow as molasses, making reference to the Lord and leaning in toward me with that conspiratorial tilt of the head, squint of one eye, saying, I'm going to be honest with you, Jennifer. Warning, warning, danger, Will Robinson. I see you as a real go-getter. Am I right? You know I am. You're the kind of person who really likes to go for the prize. A real people person with a lot of energy to get what you want. I'm right, aren't I? Actually, no, I'm a low-energy misanthrope whose retirement goal is to live alone with my husband and our thundering herd of dogs in a charming cottage in Cornwall, write my books, send them off to a publisher who deposits large amounts of money in my very deserving bank account. So I don't have to see no damn body I don't want to see. Well, am I right? Oh, yes. Wow, you nailed me. How did you know? Oh, I can tell, she said with an evil twinkle in her eyes. I see you in one of our management positions, and we have one coming up. Suffice it to say, the next 25 minutes are spent trying to convince me of what a lucrative business this is. Without telling me how much it pays. I don't care how many radio celebrities come here. I do care what goes in my bank account. <coughs> Bottom line, nine to six weekdays, but you don't get out till seven or eight. Nine to one on Saturdays, but you don't get out till two or three. One fifty a week base plus commission that was not defined and no days off for one year. Now, do you have anything planned, Jennifer, in her most saccharine voice? Because if we give you this marvelous opportunity and in a month you need to be off on a Saturday for a wedding or something, we're going to have a real problem. 
No wonder that sign's been in the window for two years. So long, Lucille. You can keep your crappy 150 base plus whatever, working late, no days off for a year, or we'll have a problem with it. And honey, with all that money you say you make there, why don't you get yourself a good wig? If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.